Man, good morning. Good to have all of you here on this holiday weekend. We are into the month of September. Hard to believe. Before we get into the message this morning, don't forget, especially parents of youth and youth, you just have a very short time to sign up for that very big event coming up in just a little over a month. So be aware of that. So today, we start a 42-week series in the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus. This morning's message I would entitle, Captivated by Christ. We're going to be in many different places in the Gospel today. Um, and I want to give you, before we begin this series, just a little background of the Gospel of Luke and of Luke himself. Luke, out of the four Gospels, was actually the last one accepted into the New Testament. Matthew and John were accepted first because they were two of the Lord's 12 disciples, and they had no trouble getting their Gospel in. And then Mark's Gospel was included next, uh, not only because Mark's Gospel was the earliest Gospel, meaning earliest written right after Jesus was here on earth, but his main source for his information was the apostle Peter, who also was one of Jesus' 12 disciples and maybe the closest disciple to Jesus. Luke is sort of like the orphan gospel. It was just hanging out there, right? And it took a while for it to be accepted and embraced overall. And one of the interesting reasons for that is, many of you may not know this, Luke is the only Gentile to write Scripture. Every other book in the Old and New Testament is written by a Jew. Luke is the only Gentile to write any Scripture. And his two books, Luke and Acts, because they are very long books, in fact, Luke is the longest of all the Gospels, actually is about 30% of the entire New Testament. A third of the New Testament, then, was written by one man, Luke. Now, one of the reasons why I always gravitate towards Luke out of the others is since I was a child, Luke was my favorite Gospel. When I would choose which gospel to read and go through, I mean, obviously, I've done that with Matthew and Mark and John, but there's just something about Luke that always pulls me back. So I've spent more time in Luke than any other gospel uh, over my 50-plus years of being a Christian. And so I hope to share some of that with you in the next 42 weeks. But as we say here at the Oasis, the Bible is not for information, it's for transformation. And it's not going to do any of us any good to spend 42 weeks in a gospel and not come away from it without being changed, transformed by God. If, if you and I cannot engage with Jesus and the story of Jesus over the next 42 weeks and not want to follow him more closely worship him more enthusiastically, and just love him more, then 
it's not really accomplished what I think God would want us to accomplish in these next 42 Sundays together. So I hope you'll be with me and go with me through this journey of the Gospel of Luke. And I'll also say this over the next couple of weeks. This isn't going to be starting in chapter 1, verse 1 and going all the way through. I am saving the Christmas stories that are contained in Luke for the two Sundays right before Christmas in December. So we're sort of going to not go in chronological order through Luke. We're going to start in various parts of Luke today, and then next week we're going to be at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, and we'll come back to chapters 1 and chapter 2 right around Christmas time to match those up with the season. So today, I actually want us to start at the end of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. And I, I want to share three things today with us that the story of Jesus should inspire in our lives. Again, if I had to title today's message, it would be Captivated by Christ. Are you captivated by Christ? Now, the story we're going to read, and I don't do this a lot, but I'm just going to ask you to follow along, and I'm going to stop every once in a while and make some comments, but Luke is the only one that contains this story of a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to two of his followers, okay, on this road from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And so if you would just follow along with me, beginning in chapter 24 of Luke, verse 13, we read, Now that very day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and debating these things, Jesus himself approached and began to accompany or walk with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Then he said to them, what are these matters you are discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there these days? That's a little ironic, isn't it? Jesus knows more than anybody exactly what happened, right? He said to them, what things? The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. A man who was with his powerful deeds and words proved to be a prophet before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Not only this, but it is now the third day since these things happened. Furthermore, some women of our group amazed us. I want you to keep that word amazed in your heads today as well. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back and said they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. 
So he, Jesus, said to them, You foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, I want to stop for just a moment because this is important. Did you notice that Jesus is not chiding these two disciples for not believing the witness of the women and for not believing the evidence that they were given about his resurrection. He is chiding them for not believing all of the word of God. That's what he's chiding them for. He's saying, you all have this in your scriptures and you are not believing all that God has said about his son, the Messiah, and what he had to go through. See, like many in Jesus' day, they wanted the Messiah to come, as they say here, and we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. Their hope was in a Messiah that was going to come and overthrow the Roman yoke upon them and set up his kingdom immediately. And when Jesus didn't do that, their hope was lost because their hope was in the wrong place. Their expectations were in the wrong place. They were not embracing all that the Bible said about Jesus. They were choosing the parts that they liked and rejecting the parts that they didn't like in their heart, and that's what Jesus chided them for. Let's go on. Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted. It simply means he would explain thoroughly, unfolding the full meaning of the whole Old Testament written about himself in all the scriptures. That is a great verse that teaches us the, prof the profitability of studying the Old Testament. Because notice Jesus is using the Old Testament and basically going through the entire Old Testament and, and saying, I'm on this page, I'm on this page, I'm on this page. Jesus is on every page of the Old Testament, which is one of the reasons why it's good that we as Christians study the Old Testament, because Jesus is there too, just like he is in the New Testament. Verse 28. So they approached the village where they were going, and notice, Jesus acted as though he wanted to go further. He didn't really want to. So what's Jesus doing here? Is he playing games with these two disciples? No. Jesus will not force more of himself on any of us than what we want. And so Jesus wanted to see if they were interested in more. More of him, spending more time with him, and all of that. Because Jesus is always looking to spend more time with us, but he wants that to come from us, not from him. But they urged him, stay, remain, abide with us, don't leave us, because it's getting toward evening and the day is almost done. So he went in to stay with them. What a beautiful picture. And when he went in to one of their homes there, Jesus became the host, and he reclined at the place of the table with them, sharing a meal with them, and then took bread, blessed it, and broke it, very much like the Lord's table, right? And gave it to them. And then don't miss verse 31. At this point, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Now, why didn't they recognize him before? If they were his followers, well, several reasons why. 
First of all, that wasn't where their hope was. Second, the last time they saw this man, as Isaiah said, he didn't even look human. Their hope wasn't in the resurrection. Their hope wasn't in ever seeing him again. But more importantly, there's this principle that is given here that we need to make sure that we don't pass over. And that is this, spiritual truth is only seen with spiritual eyes. And God will prevent us from seeing him and seeing things until we trust and believe in faith. Then our faith opens up our spiritual eyes to spiritual truth. You see, you and I can't see God without him supernaturally opening up our eyes. We need God to open up our eyes to him. We need him to do that. This isn't the only time this concept is found in this passage of Scripture. If you go down quickly to verse 32, and then I'll come out, come back, and we'll finish this out. It says, he was explaining the Scriptures. That same word, explaining, is the same word that's translated opened in verse uh, 30, and it just simply means to open the sense of the scriptures. Then if you go over to verse 45 of chapter 24, it says he opened their minds. Our minds have to be opened not by us, but by God if we're going to understand the things of God. They are not naturally discerned, as Paul says to the Corinthians. They are spiritually discerned. And then you don't have to take the time to do this, but in the book of Acts, chapter 16, a woman by the name of Lydia is there. And the Bible says in Acts 16 that the Lord opened up her heart so that she believed in Jesus, her Messiah. Opening eyes, opening minds, opening hearts are the work of God. For instance, all of us here today, we will get nothing out of our time of worship and nothing out of our time in the Word unless we allow God to open our minds, our hearts, and our eyes to Him and to the things of God. That's why even Christians come, come to a church service, be part of a Bible study, do their own study uh, during the week or whatever, and if you and I are not asking and allowing God to open our hearts, open our minds, and, and open our eyes, we will leave the same as where we came to God that day. Because God has to do a supernatural work in order for us to absorb what he has for us. Spiritual truth has to be seen through spiritual eyes. And finally, these two disciples' eyes were open. Then, go back now to verse 31. At this point, their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and immediately then, he vanished out of their sight. Then, verse 32, they said to one another, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road and while he was explaining the scripture to us? I want you to especially to focus on that phrase, didn't our hearts burn within us? It literally means that Jesus set our heart on fire when we were with him and when we were listening to him. It means to be greatly moved. It means to be deeply affected. So the first thing 
that the story of Jesus should do for us is inspire a passion, a spiritual passion for Jesus, for the things of God, for spiritual things, for eternal things. That's what the story of Jesus should do. Just as it did that day with these two disciples on the way to Emmaus, when they finally recognized it was Jesus who was walking and talking with them. And that's what Jesus wants to do with all of us. He won't force himself upon us, but like these disciples, he will come to us and go, can I walk with you today? Uh, Do you want more of me? (laughs) Can, can we hang today? Can we stay today? Can we be in communion today? Can we be in fellowship today? Because the only way you and I will have a heart that is set on fire by God is not by keeping our distance from Jesus, but by continually walking with Jesus and communing with him and sharing our lives with him. That's how God begins to set our hearts on fire. Is your heart set on fire for Jesus today? Is there a spiritual passion in your life, one that that gets you up in the morning, one that fires you up through the day, one that is inextinguishable, one that you go to bed with and then you can't wait to wake up the next day because God has set your heart on fire. That's what the story of Jesus should do, you see. And, And I want us to see today, too, that right here at the beginning, That is one of the fundamental aspects of worship. One of the fundamental aspects of worship is a passion for God. And so God, right at the outset of our study of the book of Luke, is saying, is your heart on fire? Have you allowed me to set your heart on fire? Are you greatly moved and being deeply affected by me? As you walk with me, as you hear me speak to you, as you worship me, as you get into my word, as you pray and all of these things, as you serve me, are you truly having a heart that's burning for God? That's number one. Now, go all the way back now to Luke chapter 2. I know, we're going to be all over the place today. But I promise, this is the only one of the 42 messages where we're all over the place. I want to begin in Luke chapter 2. There is a word that constantly comes up in the gospel of Luke, pretty much from the beginning all the way to the end, over and over again. It's like a drumbeat. And it's a word that reveals to us another aspect of what the story of Jesus should inspire. And the first time this word is used is in Luke chapter 2, verse 33. Now, this is right after Jesus' birth, not right after, but a couple years after where Jesus is presented at the temple, right? He was a firstborn. And they run into this man named Simeon who is basically prophesying over Jesus, right? And, and, and what Simeon says about Jesus and in regards to Jesus or with regards to Jesus is recorded for us there in verses 29 through 32. But what I want us to concentrate on today for the sake of this message is the reaction of Joseph and Mary to the words of Simeon concerning their son Jesus. Notice what it was, verse 33, Luke chapter 2. So the child's father and mother were amazed 
at what was said about their own son. Now, think about it. I mean, most parents think their children are the greatest thing, right? That's just what parents do. But, but this goes even way beyond that. The things that Simeon is saying about Jesus literally caused even Joseph and Mary to be amazed. And what should strike us about that is that we already know from the infancy narratives in both Matthew and Luke that Joseph and Mary knew that this was the son of God that they were being privileged to be the parents to. So it's not like they just thought their child was normal in that way. And yet the things that Simeon said about him literally like blew their minds. The word amazed means to marvel at something, to wonder at something, to be awestruck or astonished. And this word, I'm going to take the time today to show you, not all the times, because we could spend the rest of our time, but I want you to get a good smattering of how often this word amazed is used by Luke to describe the story of Jesus or Jesus himself or the things surrounding Jesus. Go with me now to chapter 4, verse 22. Jesus here goes into the synagogue. We learned about this in the book of Isaiah. And he opens the scripture and he begins reading Isaiah chapter 61. And he says in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled even as you heard it being read. And notice the reaction of the people in the synagogue, verse 22. All were speaking well of him and were amazed, marveling, wondering, awestruck, astonished at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. Jesus didn't go into the synagogue and beat him over the head with his word. He didn't go into the synagogue and tell him, you're all going to hell. Jesus's words were gracious. Jesus's manner of speaking was gracious. It was loving. It wasn't filled with anger and hate, and they were amazed at that Jesus. Then go over with me real quick to verse 32, same chapter. Jesus is in Capernaum. He began to teach the people, and verse 32 of chapter 4 says they were amazed at his teaching because he spoke with power and authority. Then he comes and this unclean uh, spirit is in this man and Jesus rebuked the spirit in verse 35, told the spirit to come out of this man and verse 36 says, they were all amazed and began to say to one another, what's happening here? For with authority and power, this man commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Go over to chapter 8, verse 25. Luke chapter 8. And verse 25, here again, they are in a boat, the disciples with Jesus at this point, and that big storm comes up. And Jesus gets up out of the boat and, and he rebukes the wind and the waves and tells them to calm down. And that's exactly what they do. In verse 25, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, where is your faith? And the Bible says they were afraid and amazed. <laughs> 
They were marveling, saying, who is this that can command even the winds and the water that obey him? Then go over to chapter 9, verse 43. Sometimes the word is not translated amazed. Sometimes it's translated something else. So here Jesus also is delivering someone who's demon-possessed. And after he delivers this person who is demon-possessed, the Bible says in chapter 9, verse 43, they were all astonished at the mighty power of God that Jesus was displaying. Chapter 11, verse 14. Once again, he was casting out a demon. And the crowds, notice at the end of verse 14, were amazed at what Jesus was able to do. Then we'll skip a little bit further over to chapter 20, verse 26. Here is a story where they're trying to trap Jesus into saying something that that they can use against him to get him arrested. And when they show him these coins, Jesus has this response that just totally disarms the whole situation and de-escalates the situation. And notice in verse 26, it says, Thus, they were unable in the presence of the people to trap him with his own words, and they were stunned by his answer and fell silent. That word stunned, same word, amazed, to marvel at, to be in wonder of, to be awestruck, to be astonished. Then go over to chapter 24, verse 12. Chapter 24, verse 12. You're getting the idea here, right? I'm making my point, right? This is the resurrection day. And Peter runs to the tomb, verse 12. He bends down. He sees only the strips of linen cloth Then he goes home, and the next word is wondering what happened. Same Greek word, amazed, astonished, awestruck, to be marveled at, to wonder at what happened. Well, one more, one more. I could have done this for 10 more minutes, but I'm just, you know. Chapter 24, verse 41. Jesus actually now, in his resurrected body, appears to the disciples. And, you know, the whole thing about Thomas saying, oh, you know, let me touch, let me, let me feel you to see if you're real. And it says in verse 40, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still could not believe it, the word believe doesn't mean they didn't trust what they were seeing. It means that they just couldn't totally wrap their minds around it. It was too good to be true that Jesus was alive and was right in front of them. And yet it says, because of their joy, and notice that they were amazed. Amazed. From beginning to end, here's what Luke is saying to us. The story of Jesus, the person of Jesus, who he is, what he is, what he can do, should continually amaze us. We should be continually in awe and wonder of Jesus. We should be awestruck and astonished by him, by who he is, and what he does. 
That's what the story of Jesus should inspire. It not only should inspire passion, having those hearts set on fire, but the story of Jesus should inspire wonder in us every day, which again is one of the fundamental aspects of worship. Worship is living continually in awe and wonder of our God. It is the, 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 the aspect that literally our worship should continually be fueled by walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, getting to know Jesus more, and realizing there's always so much more about him that, that drives me to want to worship him, to live in awe and wonder and astonishment, to be awestruck. And you and I, sort of bridging now into the third point, you and I, if we've walked with Jesus any length of time in our life, he's given us so many reasons to be living in wonder in all of him. All of us could share testimony of how Jesus did this miracle for us or did that miracle or he showed up in a big way here and did that there. And just the fact that if you are here today and you are a child of God, that is you are a walking, living, breathing miracle of God. And you are an example of his great love for you. And, and you and I should live in all and in, in wonder of just being called the children of God every day and having eternal life pulsating within us and, and being able to have a mind that he gives us to be able to understand his word, to have the privilege of being able to go into his presence every day and talk to him about anything and everything at any time we want through prayer, to have the privilege of having ears to hear beautiful music sung about him and to him and to have a mouth and a voice that is able to lift up songs of praise to him. All of these things should leave us in awe and wonder of our Jesus every day. Is the story of Jesus not only inspiring passion, is it inspiring wonder in our lives? Wonder. You and I could look around every day and, and should have multiple things every day to just say, God, wow, you're amazing. I'll give you a couple examples, and I'll, I'll confess right up front. I don't do it as often, near as often as I should. But I'll tell you, from someone who's lived in five or six different states besides Arizona, can I tell you, from my opinion, at least from the states that I used to live in, Arizona has some of the most beautiful sunrises and sunsets of any place I've ever been. And because I'm down here every day at the church and drive from where I live out there in the far, far East Valley, I'm driving down the 202 some days and I'm just looking out at the sky and I'm just like, wow, God, you are amazing. I mean, that sunrise just is beautiful coming up and hitting the clouds. Or the other day I was driving down and it was this scene, I'm sure some of you saw it too, where there was, it was mostly a cloudy day but the sun, the rays of the sun were literally coming down and like just lighting up different spots in the East Valley over there by the airport. And I just looked at that and I went, God, thank you. That's amazing. Only God could do stuff like that. And, and that's what God wants to see in our lives and our hearts is that it, 
not only looking within us, but just taking the time and, and pausing to look around us, not very far, we can all see things about our God that should leave us in awe and wonder of him continually in our lives. And it's certainly the story of Jesus and who he is and what he did for us and what he continues to do for us should always leave us in awe and wonder. And that's a fundamental aspect of worship, along with passion. And then finally today, let's go back to the beginning of the gospel. Let's end where we should have began, right? Luke chapter 1. Because here, we now come to this place where we actually find out from the author himself why he wrote this gospel. And it reveals to us, again, another way the story of Jesus should inspire us and another fundamental aspect of worship. I'm just going to read these four verses, the first four verses, and then I want to share some thoughts with you. Luke writes, Now many have ta undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, like the accounts passed on to us by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word from the beginning. So it seemed good to me as well because I have followed all things carefully from the beginning to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. His name means friend of God. What a great name. So that, here's the purpose, so that you may know for certain the things you were taught. Several things. First of all, God uses everything about us, the way he made us, what he made us for, to bring him glory. Luke was a doctor by trade, okay? In the medical field, even a couple thousand years ago, one of the things about that is that you've got to be somebody that's into details. You can't be in the medical field with people's lives on the line and their health on the line and not be somebody that doesn't pay attention to details. And Luke is saying to his friend, Theophilus, to whom he's writing this, he's saying, I want you to understand, I'm in the details of this story of Jesus. And I got this from eyewitnesses. I went all the way back to the very beginning of all this. And I'm writing to you a very thorough, a very accurate, a very detailed account. You're not going to get a more detailed account of the story of Jesus from anybody than from me. Because I'm going to talk to the people that I need to talk to. I'm going to go right back to the beginning. I'm going to talk to the eyewitnesses. I'm going to show you something that is so reliable, so trustworthy, so that you can even be more sure about your God and who you believe in. And so that you can know not only the story of him, but that you can know him and know that he wants to have a relationship with you and to strengthen that relationship with you. That's why Luke wrote this gospel. Now that says something to us. That says that what we do for Jesus, and I'm not even to my point yet, so don't, what we do for Jesus should be as thorough, as accurate, as excellent, as highest quality as it can be because it's 
about Jesus. It's for Jesus. It's connected to Jesus. And it has to do with everything that we do because everything we do as Christians is to bring Jesus glory. Therefore, everything that you and I do, we better make sure that we're giving it our very best, that we are doing it to the highest level that we can do because that's exactly what Luke did. He's leaving us a great example for us, you see. That's why, you know, sometimes as Christians, we do just the opposite. Oh, it's for God, so, you know, I'll just give him my leftovers, you know. Uh, I'll, give, I'll give everything else in my life, you know, all that I can give, but when it comes to God and church and everything else, that just sort of gets the leftover energy, the leftover time, the leftover... I mean, that's, that's the way many of us live. And Luke is saying, if God has truly set our hearts on fire and we are truly living in awe and wonder of him every day, then we're not going to ever approach anything in our life, especially the things of God, half. We're going to give it our all. We're going to give it the highest quality, the greatest excellence. We're going to be thorough. We're going to be accurate because that's what he deserves. That's what he deserves. But the main thing I want us to see here is this. The story of Jesus inspires witness. Not just passion, not just wonder, but witness. In other words, it is a story that so captivates us, that so deeply moves us and greatly affects us that we can't keep it to ourselves. In a sense, we can't keep Jesus to ourselves. We have to share how great he is, how wonderful he is, how awesome he is, what he's doing in our life, how he's moved and changed our life. We've got to do that with others. And I'm not just speaking here about evangelism. I mean, that's part of it, obviously. Sharing with those who don't know Jesus about Jesus with them when God gives us the opportunity and the Spirit is moving and opening up doors. That is certainly a part of it, and I don't want to discourage anybody from being evangelistic. We need to share Jesus with the lost because people need the Lord like never before. And so we as God's people and as a church, we need to let the story of Jesus inspire us to be more evangelistic to those that don't know God. But if you note here in the Gospel of Luke, this gospel was not written to a non-Christian. This gospel was written to somebody who already knew the Lord. You see, witness isn't just evangelism. Witness can also be discipleship. Because witness is simply saying, I can't hold in what God is doing in my life or the things he shared with me. I've got to share it even with my fellow Christian. I've got to share it with my partner in ministry. I've got to share it with my Christian friend. And that's what Luke was doing because notice he says, the purpose of this verse 4 is so that you may know this for certain. In other words, that you might even have a greater assurance that the things that you've already been taught as a Christian really did happen exactly that way. It's in a sense, Luke saying, I want to strengthen your faith. I want to solidify your faith. I want to make it even more sure than what it already is, Theophilus. Because you're already there to a point, but I just want to, in a sense, pour the concrete into the cracks of your life and make it really solid. That's what the story of Jesus should do. 
because it's an ongoing story in our life. Again, these 42 weeks that we're together in the Gospel of Luke, hopefully all of us leave here knowing Jesus a little bit more than what we did 42 weeks earlier. And that the things that Jesus is revealing to us as we allow him to open our eyes, open our hearts, and open our minds are things that we just won't keep to ourselves because we can't keep them to ourselves. We've got to share them with somebody. I love it when Christians get geeked out over God. And, and we get excited about the things of God. And we've got at least somebody else in our life that we can share those with. That's what Luke was doing with Theophilus. He's a Theophilus. This story about Jesus, I can't keep it to myself. It's changed my life. It's transformed me. It continues to do so every day. God has set my heart on fire through this story. God has, has got me to a place where I'm continually living in awe and wonder of him. And I've got to share it with you, Theophilus. One of the fundamental aspects of worship is not just passion, not just wonder, but witness. If you and I truly are worshiping God, if we are living in worship of him every day, we can't keep him to ourselves. It just like, it's got to come out. And in a sense, isn't that what worship even amongst God's people is? We can't keep our voices from praising him. We can't not sing to him. We cannot stop exalting and lifting him up. That's what a heart of worship is. I must tell. I must tell how great my Jesus is. I got to let other people know. That's part of why we come together as God's people to worship because we can't keep it in. One more thing. Notice that Luke's intent was never for this to have a wide circulation. This was written for one person only. Notice, he says, verse 3, it seemed good to me as well because I followed the things carefully from the beginning to write an orderly account. Notice these next two words. Just for you. Just for you. We as Christians, especially in our modern day and age, and especially with all of our big mega churches, we've got to get past the mentality that it's always got to be big if it's for God. Sometimes the most consequential, significant things that's happening in the kingdom of God are one-on-one, where one Christian is meeting with another Christian and spending time with them. One Christian's pouring into another Christian. This Christian's pouring into this Christian, or they're mutually pouring into each other. Sometimes the most consequential, significant thing is happening just between two people. But then notice, but then God, because Luke was going to leave it up to God what happened beyond that. Then God said, oh, Luke, this isn't just this story. It's not just going to be between you and Theophilus. I'm going to use this story that you're writing down to touch hundreds of millions of people for the next thousands of years. And you and I now are benefiting and being blessed by what Luke only intended just to go between him and Theophilus. That's the way God works. See, you and I just do what we think God wants at the time and then let God take care of the breadth of it. We just take care of the depth. And God will take care of the breadth. So we start our study of the story of Jesus today 
And Jesus is saying to us, I want my story to inspire passion in you. I want to set your heart on fire. I want my story to inspire wonder in you. I want you to live every day in awe and wonder of who I am and what I do. And I want my story to inspire witness in you. I want it to be so strong in you. You are so greatly moved and deeply affected that you can't keep me to yourself. You got to talk about me and share me with others around you. And that's the three fundamental aspects of worship. Passion, wonder, and witness. God wants to set the Oasis Church on fire. Are we, are we there? Are we saying, God, set us on fire and let us burn bright for you? That's what God wants. Would you close your eyes and join me in prayer as our worship team comes? Father, we want to have our hearts set on fire for you. We want to live in awe and wonder of you. We want God to be more enthusiastic witnesses of you and for you in our lives. And God, we know that just like with Luke and Theophilus and the two men who were walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, it can happen. It can happen because you want it to happen. You're just looking for those who are willing to let it happen in our lives. And God, I believe that there's enough of us here at the Oasis right now that are willing to let you come and set us on fire, God. May we grow in our opinion and appreciation and admiration and adoration of you as we walk through this great story of Jesus. May we fall in love with you, Jesus, more than we ever have, God. May we want to follow you more closely than we ever have. May, Lord Jesus, you be our, our number one. May you occupy first place in our lives. May we exalt you and elevate you through what we live and how we live and what we do every day, God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and let's worship the Lord by singing this great song.